Thanks for listening to the RTS Washington Faculty Podcast. I'm Timo Sazo, Director of Admissions and Executive Producer and Editor of this podcast. This is the fourth episode of our summer short series. Listen as Scott Red and Peter Lee ask Grace Utanto about the role of theology proper in apologetics. Dr. Grace Utanto, there's been a lot of discussion about the doctrine of God in recent years. How does our doctrine of God influence or how should it influence the way that we defend the faith, the way that we do apologetics? The doctrine of God is absolutely crucial for apologetics. Well, for at least two reasons, right? I think one, the doctrine of God is crucial because oftentimes when an objector is giving an objection to Christian faith, they're oftentimes presupposing a conflicting doctrine of God, and they're lifting that up as the God of that they're actually preferring over the real God of the Bible. And the second reason is also because that oftentimes whatever they're objecting against is an objection not against the real God of Christianity, but rather against a God that is much lesser than the true God of the Bible. Okay. So what do I mean by this? Okay. Oftentimes you might hear the objection said, you know, uh, I can't believe in a God of love if this God also condemns someone to go to perdition or damnation, right? Well, when they're asking for that kind of objection, what they're actually saying is that somehow that there is an external definition of love that God has to meet in order for that God to be God. So unless this God, for example, meets this external definition of love, namely a kind of universalistic sort of love, then this God is not really love to begin with. But you see, in our doctrine of God, love is not an attribute that is distinct from God who really is, right? In other words, God is love not because he's met some external standard of love in order for him to be love, but rather God is love simply because he is love, simply and absolutely. So when we're thinking about, for example, the name of God is disclosed in Exodus 3.14, where God said to Moses, I am who I am. What is he trying to communicate there? He's actually communicating that whatever he is, he is in a self-defining way, and he is that attribute simply and absolutely. So take, for example, the attribute of wisdom. Uh, when we're thinking about God's wisdom, God is wise, not because he's learned anything from the creature, nor is wisdom something that God had to gain by growing into wisdom or something like that, but rather God simply is wisdom, simply and absolutely. Now, this is not the same with regard to creatures. When I say, for example, that, uh, let's just take a particular person. When I say that Tom is wise, Tom is wise not because he is wisdom personified. Tom is wise, in other words, in a mixed way. Tom at one point had the potential for wisdom, but wisdom at that point was not yet actualized for Tom. But at some point, because perhaps Tom went to seminary or he read a bunch of Aristotle and the Bible perhaps, right? Tom had gained wisdom. And so wisdom for Tom moved from potentiality and actuality. In other words, he was no longer just simply potentially wisdom. Uh, sorry, he didn't just potentially have wisdom. He actually accrued wisdom at that particular point of time. With regard to human beings, we are mixed creatures, in other words. We're mixed up with act and potency all the time. Right now, I'm actually speaking, but at other points, I am potentially speaking. Right now, I'm actually having energy. Other times, I am only potentially having energy, especially when I'm asleep. So with regard to God, however, he does not have 
any kind of composition in and of himself. It's not as if he was potentially love, and hence he had to meet some standard of love in order for him to then become love, but rather he is love, and that love is independent of anything that he does in creation. In other words, he was love in eternity past, and he is the self-defining standard of love, so that we don't get to come to God with an external definition of love and tell God that he must meet this standard in order then for him to prove to us that he is love. But rather, we have to come to God and subject our definitions of standards, or sorry, definitions and standards of love to God's standards of love. And if somehow God's standards of love challenges us, then we should be ready to redefine our standard of love and understand that it is us that must submit our standards of love to God rather than the other way around. So any kind of objection that says, I can't believe in a God who does this or that's not a loving God anymore, what they're really doing is saying that God's love is really kind of a, a potential love. And he isn't really love yet until he's met that standard. And they fail to recognize that God's love is the self-defining love. Our love is relative to something else. Our love is contingent. Our love is no, not self-defining the way God's is. So we have to submit our standard of love to him. So uh, it's an incredibly important aspect of the doctrine of God that he is his own attributes. It's the doctrine of divine simplicity. So when we bring that to bear in apologetics, then it reminds the interlocutor that whatever definitions of love we have are always going to be uh, mixed and pure and not worthy standards for God. And God doesn't have to meet our standards. Rather, we should redefine our standards and conform them to him. Gray, I love that discussion of I am that I am. And, and, it, and it, it shows how God's character even tries the limits of limitation uh, of, of language and that even comes out anytime i hear someone talking i hear a theologian such as yourself you know talking about uh, the character of god and particularly the aseity of god as you talk about divine simplicity it, it it does just make me marvel at how it even strains our language and our ability to express these things let, let me follow up with this what what do you do then with sort of the the, the pushback that if God, therefore, has this non-contingent existence, and yeah. yet our knowledge and our existence is entirely contingent in every way, yeah. I mean, yeah. in the obvious ways, like I need, I need air pressure to keep my body together and my brain inside my skull, <laughs> and also in the, in the sort of abstract ways, right? My knowledge is always contingent on human knowledge, on things that are knowable, et cetera. Yeah. So how can I, or in what way can I say that I can know God or say a true thing about God? Well, our knowledge of God is always analogical, right? And this is a very important uh, distinctive within our reformed and really classical tradition of Christianity, which is to say that when we say we know the love of God, we know that analogically. We know that in a creaturely capacity. We know that in a way that God has disclosed himself to us in an accommodated way. And so we do not know God's love the way that God himself knows his own love. In uh, Franciscus Junius's scholastic terminology, God has archetypal knowledge. We have ectypal knowledge. Our knowledge is a mere imprint of the knowledge that God has in and of himself. So here's another thing perhaps that we can say with regard to the relevance of the doctrine of God in relation to apologetics, which is that in an apologetic conversation, the unbeliever will always seek to bring God down to the level of creatures. And what the unbeliever would end up doing is to say that 
God's love and our love is in the same kind of continuum, rather than to say that God is the self-defining love that is distinct from our love to which we should conform ourselves. I think what the non-believer wants to do, in other words, is to say that God's love and our love has to be univocal, that God is just a larger version of ourselves. And we think to ourselves, if this is my instinct of love, then God must univocally meet that instinct or that standard for him to be loved. That's what they're doing, really. But if we understand that God is different from us and God's love is profoundly independent and God's love is analogical to us, we realize that we're dependent on God at every point to define love and also that we don't get to judge God on the basis of our own little standards of love as if God and us are in the same continuum. And also, of course, our standards of love could be faulty in that sense, right? Great. I think that that's so helpful talking about God as pure actuality and that the way that we could talk about ourselves as in the, in the, uh, the example you gave in terms of wisdom, uh, that Tom, your, your hypothetical Tom was at one point uh, potentially wise and God is never potentially wise. He is always wise. When it comes to love uh, and using the example that you gave about a God who would condemn individuals for uh, in terms of eternal damnation, is that still an act of love? Yeah, that's a great question. So perhaps that initial response is to challenge kind of the theological assumptions of the objector, right? Of the objection, namely that they think, here's my definition of love. My definition of love is universalistic. God doesn't meet that definition. And hence, God is not love, right? But I've challenged that theological way of reasoning. Um, so here's another way to respond to that is really just to answer it head on. And, and you know, I gave this analogy before from the Lord of the Rings, for example, right? When we're watching the Lord of the Rings, we are not angry at Aragorn when he is slaying the orcs, when, he, when Legolas and Gimli are competing with how many orcs they have slain and so on, right? But rather we cheer hurrah well why is that it's because we feel that justice is served and there needs to be vindication and evil should be hated and love requires a hatred of evil and that's exactly how the bible describes of the love of god right god loves that which is good god loves that which is good for his creatures and he hates evil right such that you know when we actually take a look at lived human experience we respond to justice when it is being meted out and we cannot stand it when injustice happens. We want there to be vengeance, proper vengeance. We want there to be punishment that is fitting to the crime, right? And so the doctrine of the wrath of God is actually fitting with that kind of intuition. And that intuition is still held within our so-called tolerant society. Again, take a look at cancel culture. We've talked about that in our podcast a lot of times. We are impatient when things uh, are going wrong. We, we see a wrongdoing and we want them to be punished immediately. Well, actually the doctrine of the wrath of God fits with that intuition, but also addresses that intuition. It says to us, we don't have the right to punish the other person. We don't know exactly what they deserve. God does, but it also fits with the intuition in the sense that, you know, there has to be good justice being meted out. And there has to be punishment that fits the crime. And our problem is that we don't think we're the orcs. We think that we are Legolas and Aragorn. We think we're the pure ones fighting evil. But what if deep inside us, there's a seed of evil that could make us potentially orc-like? 
And left to our own devices, apart from God's common grace, that's exactly what we can become. The orcs is a warning to us, right? Rather than reminding us that we are like Aragorn, we should take a look at the Lord of the Rings, given the Bible's doctrine of sin, and say we are like the orcs. And hey, we are evil. We can be evil. We often are evil. Our thoughts are impure. We know it to ourselves. And if God hates evil, right, the wages of sin is death. And the amazing thing, hence, is is not that God would actually punish. But actually, that God would be good to us. So the shocking thing about Christianity is that it's the only religion, is the only faith that says bad people too can be forgiven. And we shouldn't be shocked at God's、um, justice. We should be shocked at the grace of God that He could be so good to sinners like us. 